Hi, listener. Welcome to Millennial Moves. I'm your millennial host, Zach Donish. This chapter of Millennial Moves is part two of our four-part series on the creative process. In part one of Four-Part Harmony, I talked with composer Dana Kaufman, whose cheese it infused creativity binge really helped provide a lot of context and uh, some entertaining visuals into how she creates her wonderful music. This part, part two, uh, will focus on composer Jay Diaz and a lot about the idea of form. When you think about form, especially in music, one of the most common forms is ABA. You have a, a theme, you have uh, a very different but still harmonically similar theme, and then you return to that first theme. It's called ABA. Then you have more advanced forms, and eventually when you get into modern classical music, form becomes the guiding focus of the piece versus uh, something you might be more familiar with, which might be a melody. In poetry, you have something like a sonnet, which is uh, 14 lines and then a rhyme structure that fits inside of that. And then usually at the end, you have two lines that help bring the piece to a close. You also have acrostic poems or different visual poems that help draw the eye to different pieces of the poem. And then, of course, you have television shows like the police serial versus the hospital drama versus your quiz show or game show. All of these forms help shape the content you watch, what you listen to, what you read, and help bring some familiarity to what you're experiencing. This familiarity is, is really important because it helps make you feel safe while experiencing something new. Um, there's some great podcasts by the designer of Magic the Gathering, a, a card game, that talk about how when you're designing new things all the time, you want to bring a lot of the familiar into those designs in order to make people feel safe when branching out and trying something new. When you listen to a lot of pop songs, you'll notice they might all be based on a few different chords you've heard before. One of the best examples is Pachelbel's Canon. There's a, a great YouTube video about a guy who plays all these different pieces of music that are based on the four chords of Pachelbel's Canon. Uh, as a former cellist, uh, I guess I'm still a cellist, as a cellist, uh, Pachelbel's Canon has a special place deep within the cockles of my heart. Uh, not too happy uh, whenever I hear it, but I appreciate how beautiful it can be when you're not playing the same eight bars. But form itself is really important, not only for your experience as the listener and as someone experiencing, whether it's poetry, TV shows, what have you, but it's important for the writer of the piece, the author of the poem, etc., to help guide their own creation of the piece. Now, Jay talks a lot about form in some really abstract ways. And as an artist, as someone who likes to create, maybe not too well, but certainly somebody who likes to try, I really found it fascinating. And I hope that you'll pause and rewind and really dig deep into the way that Jay thinks about form. Now, it's a very different discussion from last week with Dana, and I think it will really provide some great uh, point and counterpoint later on when we come back to this in part five of our four-part series. I certainly hope you enjoy my discussion with composer Jay Diaz. I'm here with Jay Diaz. He's a composer, uh, studied like me at DePaul University in Indiana, completed an MFA at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, and uh, Jay is currently completing his master's degree and PhD at the University of Sheffield in England. Jay, welcome to Millennial Moves. Thank you, Zach. 
It's uh, great to have you on the pod. Uh, you are one of a uh, couple of artists I've interviewing uh, this week uh, to talk more about the creative process. And I really appreciate you jumping on board. And uh, I've got some great questions for you. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here and talk about this conversation. It's always a fun one to have, no matter who you're talking with, really. Great. Yeah. So for me, composing uh, involves a spark of inspiration. I've, I've done some amateur composing. I, I don't want to put any in the show notes, but I will surely share <laughs> yours. Uh, you know, when, when I typically listen to music or I'm, maybe I'm reading, I, I suddenly will have this need to create something or tell a story through music. So when you sit down to write a piece, what does the genesis of it look like? How are you inspired? Yeah, well, that's definitely changed in the past couple of years pretty dramatically. Um, I'd say in the last three years, especially. It used to be very much uh, like an emotional need, an emotional release, if you will. Um, and more recently, it's been more cerebral uh, drive for me, uh, especially like I just completed a work this month um, that I was thinking about for about two months. And I was just thinking about what I wanted to do within the composition, what compositional problems I wanted to address or challenge myself with. Um, and then in January, beginning of January, I just found some sounds that I thought were really cool. And I tried to fit them in this kind of plan that I had thought about. So do you plan out a lot of your compositions beforehand? It sounds like you, you do a bit of planning. Yeah, especially now I'm doing a lot more planning because I, I find that it helps me uh, with creating larger structures. And when it's a spark of inspiration for me, it's usually an, a short improv. And it's hard for me to expand on that um, unless I start thinking about it um, in a more formal manner. And so what does that planning look like? Are you drawing out, you know, big arcs on paper? Are you usually just sort of sitting in finale or Sibelius and, and figuring out the best kind of combinations or orchestration? <laughs> Is this where we reveal what notation software we use? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, You're welcome to, uh, to let it slip if you feel like it. <laughs> no, it's um, it really takes on different forms. The planning does. Um, I have a little notebook with me, just a little note, moleskin notebook, and I, I mean, I do. I do a lot of random writing, kind of scribbling. It might just be ideas of something I saw or a texture that I'm thinking about, and I'm just writing how it feels or how I might hear it, you know, if I'm scratching it. Um, but it also might just be random shapes. Um, like this uh, work I just completed two months ago, I was just drawing a bunch of shapes and seeing what would happen if I turned them. So I was drawing on my notebook. I was ripping paper out and twisting it around my room. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of drawing and writing. That's such an abstract kind of way of, of finding music. Um, it's really interesting. How exactly do those shapes and abstract ideas turn into sound and music for you? Yeah, in this particular instance, the shapes took on specific identities, essentially. And I wasn't worrying so much about the sound at that stage. I was just wanting to play around with certain identities and seeing how I could present them um, as a whole on their own and how I could combine, you know, two or three identities to form a new identity. Um, so that just gave me ideas on then how to break down the sound. So easy example, if I, you know, I had a circle and then a triangle inside of the circle. Um, so that was two identities, easy way to combine it right there. <laughs> And then if I take the triangle out, I can break it down and have three lines. So that's a different way of thinking of the triangle, of how to build the triangle, how to build that pattern. 
and then in, you know instead of the circle never ending line which i couldn't really figure out how to take apart without making it not a circle <laughs> sure uh, so it sounds like you're you're really playing with form as a huge concept here rather than like you said really worrying about sound is that accurate? yeah yeah no that's very accurate and it's been very uh freeing in a way um because i used to be obsessed with finding the right sound for the right feeling or for the right story uh and that came out of depaul actually with my piano teacher there at piano lessons she said something to me kind of essentially you know sound is 80 percent thought and 20 percent sound now in context she was trying to get me to think about my practicing <laughs> and how i needed to to think about what I was going to practice before going into the practice room and being overwhelmed. Um, but that's of course stayed with me now and has changed meaning for me. So now I'm just thinking more about, uh, the form, as you said, of the composition and then the sound, uh, and this way I'm just, uh, it's less, uh, I think it's healthier for me just to be able to let go of the sound or the emotion, the final product, and just kind of build um, in my own little world, essentially. So we have a square, we have a, a circle. How do these shapes, how do these forms break down? And then how do you begin to apply sounds to those forms? It sounds like a lot of it comes from the environment. Um, yeah, it could come from environment. Uh, it could come from a million places. Uh, so I will, so let's say I have my little shapes and I'm ready to start finding sounds. Um, so I'll go shopping essentially. I have this little zoom recorder that I carry with me. So I might just record on the street. Um, I've been obsessed for the past couple of years with, um, internet sounds. So essentially anything I find on the internet, whether it's YouTube video or recording of something, and this is probably, I shouldn't be saying this because it's like awful quality audio. <laughs> and it's like I'm stealing uh, sounds from other people. But, you know, when they're like one second bits, no one can tell. <laughs> of course. And I think also it's been said before, you know, great artists steal. Yeah, several times. We'll go with that. It helps me sleep at night. There you go. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'll find my sounds. And then with this example, with the shapes, you know, I'll build the one identity that's the circle. Um, and, and I'll figure out what that means as I'm playing with the sounds. And then I'll find sounds to build the triangle. Um, and that might be, you know, the difference in the sounds might be that the circle is just more... Uh, might be like a loop essentially. So I'm working with never ending loops for the circle identity and for the triangle, it's angular sounds that are really loud and soft and, you know, fast, uh, changes and rhythms, um, just as an example. So then I'll work on how to combine those two and how to present them on their own. Talk to me then about kind of who or what influences your composing, because the way that you think about composing is really unique. So I, I would venture a guess that who you listen to is also in a very avant-garde way. Uh, maybe we'll see what we'll see what you decide. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm completely decision, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm completely obsessed with Bjork and have been for most of my life since I first discovered her sounds and albums and music and art. Um, you know, she's a multimedia artist. I don't know if she would call herself that, but um, you know, she's had installations and she also DJs every now and then. <laughs> Um, and, of, and of course, you know, she composes and she follows her music from that stage through the production stage. So she's engineering and mastering as well. 
Um, so I'm just obsessed with her for sure. Uh, and then on the flip side, I am also listened to a lot of like Frederick Jeffsky, who's an American composer. He went to DePaul for residency once. Apparently he wasn't very nice, uh, but great composer. Um, I've also just started listening to Pamela Z, um, who I just, I literally found her yesterday and I started listening to her work breathe and she has some electronics, uh, processing happening. She controls her performances with a uh, glove and I'm not sure what type of sensors on there, but she's kind of moving her hand in space and the sound is changing and she's singing live and moving around, which I always find interesting. Talk to me more about the glove. It sounds like a Nintendo power glove with extra features, but you know, it's, yeah. it's, there's a little more to it. I imagine. Yeah. And I don't, like I said, I just discovered her yesterday and I don't know what she's working with exactly, but I imagine it's something like what Emojin Heap was using and a couple of other artists have gotten their hands on. Uh, maybe it's it, that the space was essentially graphed. And so it, when you move your hand, there's a sensor that you know does something with the sound in a specific place. Uh, might be volume, might be, you know, cutting it up or pausing and continuing, speeding up, slowing down. Uh, but it's really cool. So I'm excited to kind of dig into her work. Um, what else do I listen to? I just started to listening to Meredith Monk as well. I find her work fascinating. Uh, Pauline Oliveros, also amazing. Alvin Lucier, um, yeah, and I think that's kind of where I live, as well as, of course, I'm always nostalgic for um, Scraven, a uh, Russian piano, pianist and composer. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about a couple of different disciplines already in our kind of short chat so far. What makes composing, especially, I think, more classical composition, which uh, you're, you're very much uh, a classical composer, you know, what makes that different than other creative disciplines? And, and what struggles are unique to com- composition that other creative disciplines might not face? Yeah, so great question, because I recently I had a final submission for my master's here uh, yesterday. <laughs> And in it, we we had a project, a collaborative project, where we had to work with someone from another discipline. It wasn't music. So it's, um, and I decided to work with an illustrator. And one of the main issues we wrestled with was the fact that music is a time-based art. And you experience it in time, the final product. And versus my, you know, the illustrator I worked with, Flora Manager, um, you know, her illustrations are not time-based. You don't experience them in time. There are artifacts embedded in her paintings and illustrations of time, like a stroke and the layering and the drying of the different um, paints that she might use. But you're not experiencing uh, the work itself in a specific amount of time. You know, the composer tells you, you're going to listen to me for five minutes. Um, so I just, I, it was really hard for me to reconcile that and to, you know, try and liberate either illustrating from that or try and bring music to that same level, um, where it's not a time-based art, but it's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like you're almost adding a whole nother axis to an X, Y graph. If you want to think about it mathematically, where you have this, the the person experiencing it a message or a theme or, or even just colors you want to impart uh, on maybe visual art, but then you have the Z-axis that's time, and you can sort of vary the Z-axis on other disciplines, but with music, 
you have a you have to listen to the whole piece, otherwise you're not kind of getting at everything all at once. Yeah, yeah. No, it was just hard to wrestle with. We we kind of came up with some answers, like you know, we I improvised on my computer, and she improvised as a painter. We didn't show the audience the final um, illustration. Um, but they still listen to the sound. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it was an interesting project and it made me more aware of kind of the restrictions of music as well as other disciplines. What tools do you have that help you write? So for example, some people might bounce a ball against a window or for me, sometimes I'll shuffle a deck of cards. Uh, do, do you chain smoke? Do you drink coffee obsessively? What are your music writing habits? <laughs> I have a couple. Uh, definitely drinking wine. Um, there's a nice little Tesco store down the street, which supplies that habit very well. <laughs> uh, and then I also do smoke on occasion. Um, I'll also, uh, whether it's tobacco or pot, either one, fantastic for relaxing for me. Um, what else do I do? I pace um, quite a bit, and I have a fantastic room right now that helps me pace a lot of room for pacing um and other than that i just um kind of you know write on my little notebook um scribbles and scrabbles and see what happens that's that's awesome so when you encounter writer's block uh, for me writer's block's a thing and whether it's poetry or music how do you push through that yeah i break down i'll well one i'll stop what i'm doing and just kind of remind myself to step back um if i can usually i can um, you know, just put the work down, go for a walk, and then come back to it um, either in an hour or in a week. Um, what else? I also break, I'll just start breaking down what I'm working on to the very basic foundations, um, just simple uh, concepts, and just twist them in a different perspective and see if that helps me push forward with whatever I want to do. That's great. So on your website, your biography talks a bit about, you know, your Mexican-American identity. And can you talk to me a bit about how that plays a role in your music? Yeah, so that comes in and out depending on the projects I'm working on. Uh, I'll use some of my history, some of my family's history, um, specifically some of the music that we listened to growing up. I like taking that, um, some of the traditional songs, but also some of the pop Latin tunes that my mom and sister love, and breaking down the fragments, or breaking them down into fragments, and using that in my composition. Um, I'll also use, I recently used an Aztec death whistle in a composition, and that's something that the Aztecs used to march on their enemy. And, you know, so 10,000 Aztec death whistles would play before they would attack their enemy, which is terrifying. It just sounds, the whistle itself sounds like someone's dying. Um, so fantastic for performance. Yeah. For some reason, I remember seeing an image of one that was carved into a skull and that was the most metal thing I witnessed in a while. (laughs) Yes, they're traditionally carved, um, or I guess made out of clay, and uh, formed into uh, skulls. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting instrument. Uh, I, I would love to hear it uh, in the context of a piece. Yeah, I can definitely send you a link to, um, I think it's the piano trio that I wrote that's in it, um, and you can take a listen there. Um, I also have a bunch of links of those uh, when I was doing research, so I can send those to you as well. That'd be awesome. I'll go ahead and include those in the show notes, or at least some of them here for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, And then I also pay attention to Mexican um, 
a lot of the violence that's happening in the state that surrounds my mom's home state in Mexico, just kind of seeing what's happening. There's always a lot of um, drug uh, cartel violence, essentially, a lot of kidnappings and disappearings. So I pay attention to that um, just to see what's happening. Um, and some of the politics, although I'm not too involved with the politics in Mexico at the moment. Talk to me a bit about some of your other projects uh, that you have going on, anything you want to plug or talk a bit about uh, before we close up uh, our interview today. Yeah, so um, tricky question, believe it or not. <laughs> I just finished a giant dance um work in Ghana, Africa that went up in December. So now I'm taking a break. <laughs> hey, a well-deserved one, it sounds like. And, and so I'm actually working on a conference <laughs> for, for composition and computer music. Um, so I can plug that. And if anyone's in England, you're welcome to come in May 3rd and 4th. I can send that info along. Um, but other than that, I'm just scrambling to find, you know, master's thesis ideas right now. <laughs> Well, if anybody has any master's thesis ideas, send them Jay's way. Jay, please uh, do. <laughs> what uh, what what are you looking forward to in the next year regarding your compositions, other than settling on a master's thesis? <laughs> other than that, I'm hoping to write a large ensemble piece. Um, I have this idea that to tie in, you know, that law, the three fourths law for a person of color mm -hmm. um, that the U.S. used to have. I want to use that in a structural way for composition for an orchestra, which I've and I've never written an orchestra piece. So I really want to take the year to come up with that idea. Well, that sounds extremely engaging. I look forward to uh, not only updating our listeners, but uh, maybe uh, once you have a complete, send it along and I'll be happy to take a listen. Great. Thank you, Zach, for having me. Oh, of course. Thanks a lot for jumping on the podcast, Jay. I really appreciate not only your insights, but uh, really the unique perspective that you bring to the table regarding composing. Thanks so much for joining us here in Millennial Moves. A big thank you to Jay Diaz for a great discussion about musical form. When you think about writing your next composition, poem, or creating something new, take a second and consider form. How does the structure of your work influence what you try and cram inside of it. Maybe try different forms with the content you have and see how they differ. Which is better, which is worse? How, how do they change? Lots of neat things to take away from these past two chapters interviewing our composers. Next week, we'll be entering the world of film, where we'll talk to a filmmaker who's worked on some familiar ad campaigns and has some great projects in store. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Millennial Moves. As always, if you like the podcast, like the page on Facebook and share the link for this chapter. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. As always, I'm your host, Zach Donish, and thanks again for listening to another chapter of Millennial Moves. <laughs> Thank you.